Chapter Twenty Two of A Casket of Cameos. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Casket of Cameos by Frank W. Borham. Dr. R. W. Dale's Text. One. It was the veteran's last struggle. Dr. Dale lay dying, and in dying a horror of great darkness fell upon him. He who had established the faith of thousands found his own faith failing him. Happily he lived long enough to conquer and to tell the secret of his victory. The Reverend George Barber sat by his bedside at Fanbedre, and into his ear the sick man poured the story of his conflict. It was a sad, distressful night in the early stages of my illness, the doctor said. The house was quiet, all the members of the family having retired to rest. Soon after midnight I awoke in great pain, and a terrible distress crept over me. I was full of fear. I did not wish to disturb my wife and daughters. They were worn out with anxious watching. So I lay silently struggling against the indescribable horror of an unknown dread. When the conflict reached its worst, it seemed as though Christ himself came, and standing close beside me said, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. That, added the doctor, with a look in his face that was full of noble confidence and glorious hope, that steadied me, and I felt strong and safe in the love of Christ. I am not surprised. Every minister knows that the experience is a very common one. Whenever I am called to a house of sickness or sorrow, said Ian McLaren, I always read to the troubled folk the fourteenth chapter of John. Nothing else is so effective. If a man is sinking into unconsciousness, and you read, In my father's house are many mansions, he will come back and whisper, Mansions and he will wait till you finish, where I am, there he may be also, before he dies in peace. Nor is this Ian McLaren's only tribute to the spiritual charm of the familiar verses. For in one of the most affecting scenes in any of his writings, he again introduces the passage that he found so potent in his own ministry. In the doctor's last journey, Drumshew reads the deathless sentences at the deathbed of Dr. McClure, the truest soul in Drumtochty, 
it's a bonny word exclaimed the dying doctor and turning back to history once more everybody remembers that in those last sad days at abbotsford lockhart read the selfsame chapter to sir walter scott it's a great comfort <sighs> sighed sir walter a very great comfort let not your heart be troubled ye believe in god believe also in me in my father's house are many mansions if it were not so i would have told you i go to prepare a place for you that steadied me says dr dale and i felt strong and safe in the love of christ it's a bonny word exclaims dr mcclure it's a great comfort sighs sir walter scott a very great comfort and all three of these testimonies were uttered on the brink of eternity two let nobody suppose however that these monumental words were designed for the special consolation of the dying such an assumption would be the very reverse of the truth they were first uttered by the dying for the special consolation of the living the redeemer of the world was turning his face towards the cross and was comforting the desolate hearts of his disciples he was bracing them to serve and to suffer he was guarding them against the paralysis of despair the ministry of these great words to the dying has been one of the most arresting experiences of the church but it is in their ministry to the living that they achieve their most splendid triumphs a few years ago eighteen million people in the united states set themselves to a systematic study of john's gospel dr w t ellis commented on the circumstance in the columns of the boston transcript he describes the sensual pleasure-loving materialistic and decadent old city of ephesus the city in which the words were written he pictures the members of the ephesian church imploring the aged john to commit to paper the sacred and beautiful memories with which he had so often fortified their faith and enriched their hearts and he points out that the little company of devout disciples whom even the corruption-laden air of a great heathen capital could not enervate little dreamed when they besought their aged pastor and spiritual father to write down his personal memories and his interpretation of jesus christ that the biography penned by john would one day be studied in five hundred languages and that it would become the text of special study for millions of persons in continents then undreamed of in regard to the contents of the book dr ellis mentions only one passage it is not god so loved the world or him that cometh unto me i will in no wise cast out it is 
let not your heart be troubled. Peep, says Dr. Ellis, into any mature Christian's copy of the Bible, and it will be found to open most naturally at the fourteenth chapter of John's Gospel, where the best-thumbed passages will be seen to be those beginning, Let not your heart be troubled. Beyond a doubt, this old book, which springs like a white lily of spirituality out of the black mud of Ephesian heathendom, is the most popular and the most helpful bit of writing to be found in all the world. Myriads and millions of persons, of all sorts and conditions, have found it a veritable book of life. Now this is extremely significant. We are to peep, be it observed, into the Bible of a mature Christian. This mellowed believer has not yet come to the valley of the shadow. It is in the rough and tumble of life that he has found the words so precious. They form a veritable book of life, Dr. Ellis maintains. The experiences of the ages would amply vindicate his conclusion. We must go into the matter a little more thoroughly. 3. From a great cloud of witnesses, I select two as typical. Both are members of a colored race. One is from history, one from fiction. One is a woman, the other a man. Dr. Grattan Guinness was here in Australia when, in July 1906, he received the sad news of the death of his daughter, Lucy. Never, wrote Mrs. Guinness, can I forget his tearless grief as he read the cabled message of sorrow. He sought comfort in solitude, and went away to a quiet bay on the shore of New South Wales. A few Australian aborigines were living there. One morning, as he sat with bowed head listening to the mournful music of the sea, a hand was laid on his shoulder, and in the strange accent of the aborigines he heard the familiar words, "'Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God.' believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He looked up and saw at his shoulder the wrinkled face of an old colored woman, shining with a heavenly light. She was God's messenger to him. On the following Sunday he preached a sermon on faith which those who heard will never forget. Poor Tom! the hero of Uncle Tom's cabin, would not object to being placed in the company of this Australian aboriginal. The two have much in common. Tom is being carried by the slave boat up the Mississippi. He has been sold. He looks back over the stern of the vessel and seems to see the old Kentucky farm with its shadowy beaches, seems to see the master's house with its wide, cool halls seems to see the little cabin overgrown with multiflora and bignonia. He seems, too, to see Aunt Chloe, his good wife, busy in her preparations for his evening meal. He seems to hear the merry laughter of his boys at play. He seems to be listening to the chirrup of the baby at his knee. And then, with a start, 
it all fades, and the horrid reality rushes back upon him. Is it strange, Mrs. Beecher Stowe asks, is it strange that some tears fall on the pages of his Bible as he lays it on the cotton bale, and with patient finger, threading its slow way from word to word, traces out its promises? Having learned late in life, Tom is but a slow reader, and passes on laboriously from verse to verse. Fortunate for him is it that the book on which he is intent is one which slow reading cannot injure. Nay, one whose words, like ingots of gold, seem often to need to be weighed separately, that the mind may take in their priceless value. Let us follow him a moment, as, pointing to each word and pronouncing each half aloud, he reads, Let not your heart be troubled. In my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. Cicero, adds Mrs. Stowe, Cicero, when he buried his darling and only daughter, had a heart as full of honest grief as poor Tom's. But Cicero could pause over no such sublime words of hope and look to no such future reunion. Here, then, is our Australian aboriginal, quoting for the comfort of a strong man bowed down by his sorrow, the words that she has learned at the mission station. And as a result, he rises, pulls himself together, and a few days later preaches a sermon which fortifies the faith of all who hear it. And here is poor Uncle Tom, not dying but living, finding in the same rich cadences a tonic and an inspiration that brace him to face the bitter realities of a slave's existence. "'That steadied me,' says Dr. Dale, with death spreading his sable wings above him. "'That steadied me, and I felt strong and safe in the love of Christ.' "'That steadied me,' says Uncle Tom, reeling under the bludgeonings of circumstance. "'That steadied me, and I felt strong and safe in the love of Christ.' "'Whether a man is looking into the face of death or into the face of life, it is all the same. "'In either case, those words are equally precious. "'They are like ingots of gold, as Mrs. Beecher Stowe puts it. "'They are bonny words,' as Dr. McClure exclaims. They are a great comfort, a very great comfort, as Sir Walter Scott sighs gratefully. When Hugh Sutherland, the young tutor, told old David Elginbrod that he had just lost his father, the old man reached down the Bible and read the fourteenth of John as Hugh had never heard it read before. When he rose to go, David walked home in silence beside him. The spirit of his father seemed to accompany them. Hugh felt that the sting of death had vanished. The sepulchre was clothed with green things and roofed with stars. Those golden words contain all the stimulus that a man needs in facing the stern realities of this life. They contain all the solace that he needs as he confronts the gathering shadows that haunt the portals of the life to come. 
4. The things that I most enjoy are the things that I find it most difficult to define. I cannot even describe my own delight in them. How can I set down in words the pleasure that I find in the perfume of a violet, in the song of a thrush, or in the graceful poise of a deer? In the same way, how am I to explain the appeal that these majestic and gracious words make to my heart? It is impossible. I can expound neither the words themselves nor the emotions that they excite. I only know that the fragrance of the violet is very sweet, that the song of the thrush is a rapture to the ear, that the dappled deer, standing with head erect and foot upraised, holds my eye entranced, and that the great words of the text recited in my hour of need flood all my soul with comfort and with courage. Let not your heart be ruffled, disturbed, distracted, the Saviour says. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. It is such a mistake to set the one thought over against the other. I find it easy to believe in God, writes Cyril Makepeace, in a letter that the postman brought me not very long ago, when, he goes on, when I recite the creed, the first clause seems so perfectly natural and fitting. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. How can I look at the universe around me without believing in God, the maker of it all? But Jesus! I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. I find it very difficult, in my thought and devotion, to find room for the figure of Jesus, the pale Jew of a lone Syrian town, within the compass of my conception of God. And over against this feeling of Cyril Makepeace, I place the difficulty of Mary Fairfax. Mary came to me one evening in great trouble. It is so easy, she exclaimed, to believe in Jesus. How can anybody read the New Testament without believing in him? But God! Oh, how I wish that I could really believe in God! To me, God is so incomprehensible. How can anybody love God? Poor Cyril make peace. Poor Mary Fairfax, let not your heart be distracted by such distinctions, says the text. If you can nestle your aching heads in the Father's love, be glad. Do not let the technicalities of the faith disturb your peace. If you find comfort in the thought of Jesus, make the most of it. He that hath seen me, he said himself, hath seen the Father. Why set the two thoughts in antagonism in the day of tears? The heart and the intellect must not quarrel in the hour of grief. If the heart is in the sunshine, let the intellect range itself beside it, 
and share the genial glow. If the intellect sees the way shining through the gloom, let the heart unquestioningly follow. Let there be no clash, no discord, no inner turmoil. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. T'was the master himself who said it to the sorrowful little band, facing an hour of darkness that they could not understand. The light of their lives was fading. Their eyes with tears were dim. The rugged men were shaken at the thought of losing him. Let not your heart be troubled. Never was voice so sweet. Never was look more kingly, nor assurance more complete. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God most high, and one with God the Father. Equal with him am I. That steadied me, said Dr. Dale, and I felt strong and safe in the love of Christ. With so brave a testimony on record, other staggering minds will know in which direction to look when the shadows close thickly about them. End of chapter 22 End of A Casket of Cameos by Frank W. Borham